Well, good to see you all tonight, and just uh, by way of information for this Sunday, it is the first Sunday of the month, so we'll be looking at our word for the year, our word for 2020, which is trust, trust. and we'll be looking at it through the lens of 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 14, if you'd like to read ahead, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, 14. Now, I think we recognize that in the last 150 years or so, we have been transitioning from periods or seasons of human history from one to the other. And we had been in for some time the industrial age where uh, advances were being made in the manufacturing uh, aspect of our world. And then we moved into the information age where technology advanced, information became more readily available than ever before in human history. And now we have transitioned once again from the information age to the misinformation age. And it's because of that that we're going to take a break from Second Samuel tonight. We'll look at chapter 8 uh, next Wednesday night, or uh, I guess the Wednesday after that, after praise night. But the truth is, I saw so many things on both the media and social media that were either efforts to deceive or diminish the events of yesterday or misunderstandings and misinterpretations of biblical implications I thought that we would do well tonight to take some time to talk about what's going on in our world because the fact is yesterday was monumental. The whole world was focused on one event. All eyes were on two cities, and that being Washington, D.C. and Jerusalem. And I want to talk to you tonight about the deal of the century. And we're going to talk about some of the elements of it. Is it political? Is it historic? Or is there prophecy that is related to it. Now, the first thing I want to make mention of tonight is this is all over the media, all over social media, and that is that the deal of the century was timed for the benefit of both Bibi Netanyahu and President Trump in their coming, upcoming elections. Now, to that I say, no kidding. Well, why wouldn't they? I mean, I guess you could say after all that the left and the liberal media has done to help them along, that how could they do something so ungracious as to present something positive to the world to benefit their own re-election? Listen, both of these men well understand that if their opponent wins, it could be the end of their country. And that's true for these United States of America as well. So we need to be thankful for the timing of this because it could be a boost for both Bibi and President Donald Trump in the upcoming elections. And listen, I kind of like the direction our country is going. I like seeing help wanted signs again. I like the fact that our nation is supportive of the nation of Israel like never before in its history. All these things are good. All these things are wonderful. And yesterday was indeed historic. Now, The first thing I want to address tonight is what the deal of the century is not. And this is some of the misinterpretation and misinformation that's been floating around both on the Internet and social media. Now, listen, first of all, the deal of the century is not the seven-year covenant that was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. The deal of the century has nothing to do with what is later going to happen under the leadership of the Antichrist. Secondly, this is not a dividing of the land as written of by Joel the prophet and Zechariah. Now, in Daniel 9, 26 and 27, we're told after the 62 weeks, a Messiah shall be cut off. 
but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he, the prince who is to come, will confirm a covenant with many for how long? One week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, we need to understand, first of all, a week in the eyes of the Jew. When we're reading a Hebrew text or a Bible uh, or a Bible book that is written in the Old Testament, we need to look at it through the lens of the Jewish people. They would well understand that a week, or the word actually in the Hebrew means sevens, it's the plural of seven, and a week could mean a week as we know it. In other words, a cycle of seven days, and then beginning again over on the eighth day. For them, it could also mean a cycle of years, the sabbatical year cycle, where it was basically an agricultural cycle, where the Jews were told to plant for six years, and on the seventh year, neither plant, reap, or harvest anything from the land, but to let the land rest. So in their mind, a week could mean weeks, a week could mean weeks of years. Only history would reveal which of the interpretations was proper. And now in looking back, we can well understand that the 70th weeks of Daniel, 70 weeks of Daniel are 70 weeks of years or 70 seven year periods. Now, after the mention of the Messiah being cut off, which is a Hebraism for killed, the narrative advances in time to the time of the end, to the time in which we now live, and it identifies the rise of the Antichrist to global dominance. He is the prince who is to come. So again, the text immediately jumps forward well over 2,000 years and talks about the Messiah who's cut off, that's Jesus, and the people of the prince who is to come, which is the Antichrist, and his name is, I don't care. Do you? Me either. I have no interest in him. All my interest is in meeting Jesus Christ. Now, the duration of his covenant with Israel is equal to the previous 69 sevens, meaning 69 weeks of years. The prince who is to come is going to make a covenant with Israel for seven years. Again, this disqualifies the deal of the century from being, for this and many other reasons, from being the covenant that Daniel spoke of. Now, we're also told in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7-8 that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, the prince who is to come and the lawless one are the same biblical character. They are both titles for the beast of Revelation 13, the person we refer to as the Antichrist. Now, he cannot rise to power until the restraining force and the preserving and purifying work of the church via the power of the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, and then and only then will the wrath of God be restrained no more, and it will be poured out on the earth in undiluted measure. Now, what we need to take note of first is that is if the church is still here, the Antichrist has not come. 
If the church is still here, the Antichrist cannot rise to power. And if he has not risen to power, he can't make a covenant with Israel. Kind of a no-brainer, right? Now, I have seen many comments and concerns that the United States and Israel are going to be chastened by God for orchestrating and agreeing to a two-state solution and thus dividing the land of Israel. So, before we dissect that particular argument or misinterpretation today, let me ask you, is the deal of the century the seven-year covenant made by the Antichrist and Daniel? No. So, is Israel, is the United States guilty of seeking to divide the land against the wishes of God? Now, in Joel 3, 2, excuse me, the prophet says, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up what? Excuse me, my land. Now, for a little interpretive help with that, we need to jump forward to Zechariah chapter 14, 1 to 3, where the prophet says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against what city? Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. Is that a divided city? Well, of course it is. That's the division of the city of Jerusalem. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Now, biblical interpreters will debate the issue of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, whether it, Jehoshaphat rather, whether it is a geographic location or basically a figurative statement for what the name implies. Jehoshaphat means the place of judgment. And God is saying to the nations who gather against Israel, who divide the holy city in two, that he's going to bring them into the place of judgment where he is going to deal with them directly and fight as he fights in the day of battle against them. The place that Joel is talking about, the or the event that Joel is talking about, which is actually descriptive, not prescriptive, meaning that Joel is not saying anybody who tries to divide the land is going to be destroyed. The fact is, the Jews were out of the land for multiple centuries, and um, God, obviously, if he was going to destroy any nation for their mistreatment of the Jews, it would be what nation? Where the Nazis come from? From Germany, obviously. So we need to think through the lens of the biblical um, understanding of the Jews and how they would interpret things. So we know that, indeed, the deal of the century is not the seven or the seven year covenant of Daniel, we know that the deal of century is not the dividing of the land that ushers the nations into the place of God's judgment. Now, one thing we need to keep in mind concerning <clears throat> excuse me, the land of Israel and especially Jerusalem is this. In Amos chapter nine, verses fourteen and fifteen, the Lord says, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and they shall, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, we have been watching the fulfillment of this prophecy 
since May 14, 1948. This is also consistent and therefore can be validated, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, by what Ezekiel 37 says about after he gives life to dry bones or brings them back into the land and puts flesh and sinew on those bones, it speaks about agricultural and economic flourishing once the Jews are back in the land. Amos speaks of it. Ezekiel speaks of it. We're watching it. Jesus is coming soon. Now, we also need to point out that while there are definitive things that the deal of the century is not, there are certain prophetic implications that are surrounding the events of yesterday. Now, let's talk about this dividing of the land, because in the midst of all the statements yesterday, there was one in particular that needed some clarification, and it was troubling when it was said, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, first of all, there were... Uh, there was a fact sheet that was presented by the White House concerning this deal that would broker uh, peace between the Palestinians and the Jews, bringing peace to the Middle East. That is the elusive uh, goal, if you will, of virtually every world leader for some time now. Now, the fact sheet said this. Here's what the vision, as it's called, proposes. A realistic two-state solution offering a viable path to the Palestinian statehood. It also says that Israel has now agreed to terms for a future Palestinian state. It says, thirdly, the vision aims to achieve mutual recognition of the state of Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people and the future state of Palestine Palestine as the nation state of the Palestinian people with equal civil rights for all citizens within each state. Next, the vision creates a path for the Palestinian people to realize their legitimate aspirations for independence, self-governance, and national dignity. Now, here's the most important line in the opening uh, section. Under this vision, neither Palestinians nor Israelis will be what? Uprooted from their homes. What did Amos say about Israel being back in the land? They will never be uprooted or rooted up again. Now, is the peace plan an attempt to uproot Israel from the land that the Lord has given them? The answer is obviously no. The second set of this vision or principles concerning this vision or the fact sheet says this. Israel has agreed to a four-year land freeze to secure the possibility of a two-state solution. In other words, no new settlements in uh, internationally questionable areas. Jerusalem will stay united. Somebody say something. Jerusalem will stay united and remain the capital of Israel. Now, here comes the trouble. While the capital of the state of Palestine will be Al-Quds and include areas of East Jerusalem. Is that a contradiction? We'll see in a moment. The vision's map will be more than double the size of the land currently. What's the next word? Use. Very key word there by the Palestinians. Beyond territory, the vision provides for Palestinian use and management of facilities at the Haifa and Ashdod airports, Palestinian development of a resort area on the north shore of the Dead Sea, and continued Palestinian agricultural activity in the Jordan Valley. The vision proposes modern and efficient transportation links for easy travel and movement of goods through the future state of Palestine, including Gaza and the West Bank. Two keys in all that we just read, the first being what we paused on a moment ago, neither Palestinians nor Israelis will be uprooted from their homes, 
and Jerusalem will stay united. The city will not be divided and remain the capital of Israel while the capital of the state of uh, Palestine will be Al-Quds and include areas of East Jerusalem. Now, no one will be uprooted from their homes, no matter what their ethnic heritage may be, even though they all bear the name of Israeli. Israeli Arabs or Israeli Jews, none will be uprooted from their homes, and those who call themselves Palestinians will not either. Now, that means that these areas that have been considered so far illegal settlements by the international community on the part of the Jews are now being recognized by the United States as legitimate, sovereign Israeli territory including Judea and Samaria, or at least portions of what's called the West Bank, as well as the Golan Heights and portions of the Jordan Valley. Now, the question then is, how can Jerusalem remain the united capital of Israel while portions are given to the Palestinians as their capital? The answer really, again, if we stay focused on what a Jew will read when they hear these sayings, we need to recognize that none of the city of David, none of the old city is going to be handed over to the Palestinians as a portion of their capital. The area designated geographically for their capital is northeastern Jerusalem. It's an area they already live in and completely occupy and to a degree self-govern already. They're not gaining anything. They're simply told you can have what you already have and call it your capital. Now we need to remember two million of the seven million people living in Israel are Israeli Arabs. And very little of Israel is actually unsegregated. Bethlehem is Arab. Nazareth, which is sometimes referred to as the Arab capital of Israel, is Arab. It is 70% Arab Muslim, 30% Arab Christian. Ramallah is Arab. In total, there are 150 cities in Israel with a large or majority portion of Arab slash Palestinian populations. Now, the areas offered to the Palestinians in the deal of the century are either already populated by them or they are areas unpopulated in the Negev by the Jews. Nothing is being taken from Israel. Hello? Nothing is being taken from Israel and handed over to the Palestinians that they do not already have possession of. So... What is the prophetic significance of this historic event? Well, several things. And the first is here in Zechariah 12, 3. We're told it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. And all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. Now, first of all, we're told when this is going to happen in that day. I've told you multiple times, 16 times in Zechariah 12 to 14, the phrase in that day is used in direct association with the 70th week of Daniel or the tribulation period. Both halves of it, the uh, first part of the tribulation and the great tribulation, as it's often referred to, or the time of Jacob's trouble, the great and terrible day of the Lord is the last three and a half year section. Now, again, this is something specific and exclusive to the 70th week of Daniel. But like with other events that Jesus mentioned in the what I like to call the preamble to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 3 to 8, 
we can see the world is moving in this direction. The whole world is not yet against Israel. Thank the Lord our nation is not against Israel. Amen? Now, like we're told about the false Christ, the kingdom against kingdom, the uh, nation against nation, the, the Greek word there is actually ethnos, and it speaks of ethnic tensions around the world. We've got rising pestilence. The coronavirus just arrived on the scene, as we all well know. We know that there's been for many, many years famines around the world on a growing scale, and we also see seismic activity as well as atmospheric events that are on the increase today. So we can see the day approaching through that particular lens. We can also see the day approaching through uh, groups like the United Nothing, the United Nations, which immediately came out against the president's plan. And again, we see by far the majority of the world is is gathered against the nation of Israel. Now, we also need to recognize something that oftentimes in the media you'll hear Washington referred to, or if you're listening to British media, Downing Street referred to, and those are actual physical locations that represent the whole of the empire. And the same is true here in Zechariah. While it does speak of the city, as we see in chapter 14 that we read a few moments ago, finally being divided during the tribulation, Jerusalem is also representative of the nation of Israel, And therefore, the world is gathered against the nation of Israel in uh, increasing animosity and angst, if you will. Now, yesterday, all eyes of the world were on the nation of Israel. All the world is voicing its opinion on the deal of the century, the boundaries, the rights, the legitimacy of the claim. And Israel is already the focus of world attention. And when the church is taken out of the way, which will decimate most of the international support for Israel's right to exist, the nations of the earth will move from its current stand of diplomatic uh, objection to military invasion. And this is what is happening uh, with this coalition that's raising up, arising up, that was prophesied by Ezekiel in 38 and 39. Now the next aspect or element concerning the events of yesterday that has a prophetic implication or significance is what Benjamin Netanyahu said during his closing salutation of his very wonderful speech that most of the media cut away from. I had to watch it from an Israeli news site to hear what the prime minister had to say. His closing salutation was this. He's looking forward to a season of peace, prosperity, and security in the coming days. Now, with all that is going on in the world, what is the one thing that we could describe as the dominant topic of world leaders? Whatever's going on in their country, the economic stresses that they all may be experiencing or the election pressures for themselves, having an election on the horizon for them, virtually every leader in the world is concerned about peace where? In the Middle East, right? Peace in the Middle East is on the mind of everyone, and they look at this as some type of ring to be grasped that would crown them as one who achieves something that nothing, uh, no one has been able to achieve in recent or modern history. Now, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 3. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, there's the 70th week of Daniel, So comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, 
Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not what? Escape. Paul is saying, amidst all the things that he's saying in that brief uh, 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 triad of verses, that there's a season of history where peace and safety is going to be on the lips of people all over the world. And he identifies that time as a time prior to the day of the Lord. He talks about it so coming as a thief in the night. Then he says, when they say peace and safety, then, or the next thing in sequence, is... Uh, the sudden, sudden destruction from the wrath of God during the tribulation. So before the day of the Lord, the world is going to be crying out peace and safety. Now, here's the important thing and why I pointed out Netanyahu's closing salutation. The word in the Greek translated as safety is more properly translated as security. So his closing statement was pre- peace, prosperity, and security is what he hopes is the end result of this deal of the century. Now, we live in a time where all eyes are on Israel, and specifically Jerusalem. Most of the world views the issue as primary in bringing about world peace. It is what the Bible prophesied would happen before the day of the Lord. So, on multiple fronts, I'd say we're already there. The Lord could come, obviously, at any moment, and the tribulation could begin not long after, or even immediately. Now, Is the deal of the century going to bring world peace? I don't think so. Now, we can answer this question by simply examining the track record of past peace accord efforts in relatively recent history. In 1947, the Palestinian answer to the peace proposed by the UN partition plan was, there's two answers, there's yes and no. One has two letters, one has three. Their answer only had two letters, and it was no. Their answer to the 1967 Khartoum resolution was same two letters, no. Their response to the 2000 Camp David Accord was no. To the offer of peace made by Ehud Olmert in 2008, their answer was no. To the 2009 Bar-Ilan initiative, which was a religious understanding between they and the Palestinian and Arab peoples, their answer was No, the illegal efforts and offer of peace by John Kerry in 2016, they gave their answer of no. And the Times of Israel just reported yesterday that a boss said on the U.S. plan, we say a thousand times no, no, no to the deal of the century. Now, the article said from the Times of Israel, the Palestinian leader rejects Trump's peace outline in a speech to Palestinian leaders saying, listen to this, Jerusalem is not for sale. And then he reaffirms his commitment to opposing terrorism. According in his language, opposing means financing. Now, that was a joke, by the way. (laughs) Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas firmly rejected the plan And the conflict, and he called it not the deal of the century, he called it the slap of the century. And Abbas addressed the plan in a speech to senior Palestinian leaders, including representatives of Hamas and Islamic Jihad terror groups at the PA presidential headquarters in Ramallah. We say a thousand times no, no, and no to the deal of the century, Abbas said, adding that the U.S. plan will not come to pass and that our people will send it to the dustbins of history. We just heard President Trump and Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu talking about the slap of the century, and if God wills, we will strike them back with slaps, Abbas said. 
It doesn't sound like he's very open to the plan to me. Now, for all those who say the U.S. just proposed a plan that will bring judgment on our nation, this plan was never going to work anyway. And the timing of it is absolutely political in motivation to a degree. I'm not saying that there's no hope or effort to bring about peace in the Middle East, and there's no sincerity or legitimacy to the efforts of Netanyahu and Trump. But the timing is what it is. But the plan, history says, was never going to be accepted by the Palestinians because the only plan the Palestinians will accept is the elimination of all Jews and the nation of Israel from the face of the earth. This is their declaration. They teach their children to kill Jews, even kindergartners. They teach to slash the neck of a teddy bear in their classrooms in order to prepare them for killing Jews someday. Now, the plan did have an element to it, and that is that we need to recognize, and that is to declare before the world that America recognizes more sovereign territory within the boundaries of national Israel than any other nation on the face of the earth. Now, there's a map, if we can uh, pop that up, it's a little difficult to see. But basically, this is what the president has presented. And these areas down, as you can see in the south, the map doesn't go all the way down to uh, the, the Red Sea, but you can see the Dead Sea there on the left. And these are areas that are already occupied by the Palestinians. They already live there. So in essence, this is not anything for us to be up in arms about. It's not something that will bring judgment on the United States. The Jerusalem Post ran an article that said this peace plan comes with a map Why is this significant? And the reason is, this is the first time any plan has come with an actual map. And one of the landmarks, again, the article says, of U.S. President Donald Trump's diplomatic plan that was introduced Tuesday night is that it presents an actual map, a map that shows how the U.S. administration envisions Israel's final boundaries. And this marks the first time any American Mideast plan has come with a map. So it was historic even on that front. Maps have been talked about, maps have been suggested, maps have been drawn up and shown in private meetings. But during the Oslo negotiations at Camp David between Ehud Barak and Yasser Arafat, no formal clear maps delineating Israel's future borders and the borders of a future Palestinian state were presented to the public. In one famous case, then Prime Minister Ehud Olmert unveiled a formal map in 2008 during a private meeting with the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas that showed he was willing to withdraw to borders very similar to the 1967 lines, which very appropriately have been dubbed the suicide borders because it would mean the destruction of Israel with land inside Israel to be swapped to the Palestinians in return for Israel's annexation of large settlement blocks. Now listen, under all much plan, Israel would, would cede more than 94% of the West Bank and compensate the Palestinians on almost a one-to-one basis for the remaining 6%. So there's never been maps drawn, but the maps drawn in the past were catastrophic, and I do believe that the Lord intervened and did not allow such a ridiculous proposition as going back to the pre-67 borders to be advanced. That would be suicide for Israel indeed. As a matter of fact, at one point, the pre-67 borders, Israel would only be 10 miles wide, and it would allow all of Israel's enemies to sit perched on the Golan Heights and fire down onto the cities below, just like they did before Israel captured those territories. Now, 
Let me give you a little more insight on what's actually happening here as far as fact and reality goes. The Palestinians are Arabs. Other Arabs call them Arabs. As a matter of fact, Syria and many of their imams refer to them as Syrian Arabs. They are not the descendants of the Canaanites. They are not the descendants of the Philistines. The land was renamed Palestine in uh, 135 A.D. by, oh shoot, his name just escaped me. He was the uh, emperor at the time, and uh, he basically forbid uh, the name Jew to be used. He would not allow uh, two Jews to walk together. He killed hundreds of thousands of Jews. And Palestine is actually the Latinized form of the word Philistine because they were the hated enemy of Hadrian, the Roman emperor. Sorry, this just in. And uh, <laughs> so at that point in time, because of his hatred for the Jews, he named the land according to Israel's ancient enemy. Now, the Philistines are also known historically as the Aegean Sea people. They're Greek in nature. They are not Arab. These Palestinian people today are Arabs. They have no relation with the ancient Philistines whatsoever. The only common feature they share is that they are an enemy of Israel. Now, Abbas said Jerusalem is not for sale. And he's absolutely right because you have no right to sell something that's not yours. Jerusalem is Israel's. Palestinians have zero right to one square inch of Jerusalem. Why do I say that? What religion do the Palestinians share with other Arab states? Islam. They're Muslims. Listen tonight. Jerusalem is not mentioned in the Quran even once. It's mentioned over 730 times in our Bible, but the Quran is not silent, nor are Muslim scholars silent about the land of Israel. Now, here's what the Quran actually does say about the land of Israel, and I'm reading from the Quran here tonight. This is not the Bible. Say, this is not the Bible. This is the Quran. Listen, here's what it says, and I quote, and mention, O Muhammad, when Moses said to his people, O my people, remember the favor of God, Upon you, when he appointed among you prophets and made you possessors and gave you that which he had not given to anyone among the worlds. O my people, enter the holy land, which Allah has assigned to you and do not turn back and thus become losers. The Quran says the people of Moses received the holy land from God. Now, sadly, I think there's a lot of Muslims that are like a lot of Christians. They don't know what their book says. And if they read the book, they would not be turning their backs on Israel. Now, let me quote to you from some of the scholars in Islam. Sheikh Ahmad Adwan, who is a Muslim scholar for Jordan, wrote recently on his Facebook page, listen to this. This is a Muslim scholar who lives in Jordan, currently alive. Obviously, Facebook wasn't around 100 years ago. And he said, there is no such thing as Palestine in the Quran. Allah has assigned the Holy Land to the children of Israel until the day of judgment. And then he quotes Quran Surah 5. Surah means chapter. The Surah of the Table is the title over that chapter. And we made the children of Israel the inheritors of the land. And then he cites Quran Surah or chapter 26, which is titled the Surah of the Poets, verse 59. Sheikh Professor Abdul Hadi Palazi God granted the land of Israel 
to the children of Israel and ordered them to settle there. In addition, it is predicted that before the end of days, God will bring the children of Israel to retake possession of the land, gathering them from the different countries and nations. He quotes this from Surah 17 verses or chapter, yeah, verses 104. Now, listen to this. Muhammad al-Husseini, lecturer and fellow in Islamic studies, who wrote this. Recognizing that the Quran does, in fact, confirm the biblical promise, then by rereading commentaries on the Quranic text, where the Jewish claim is strengthened. Beyond that, although the Jews come in for severe criticism in the works of the Muslim apologists and theologians, there are no grounds in religious law to entertain the conceit that God's promises to the children of Israel have been broken, and none to support the view that Israel is now the property of the Muslims. This is what the Muslims say. Do they have any right to Jerusalem according to their own writings? Absolutely not. The dividing of the land that brings God wrath, God's wrath on the world happens during the tribulation. And the United States just declared to the international community that more land than is recognized as Israeli sovereign territory by any other nation of the world is now being recognized in a document by the United States government. Listen, that won't bring judgment. That'll bring blessings. After all, Genesis 12:3 says, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was spoken to Abram. And the fact is, the descendants that would come through Isaac and Jacob, finally the Messiah, would bring about a blessing from the whole earth, or upon the whole earth. Those who bless his descendants, or Israel, will be blessed. I pray that the Lord bless our nation for the stand that our president has taken. Amen? Now, there have been many offers of peace to the Palestinians in the past, and they've all been met with the same two-letter answer, as has this one. And the answer was no. There will be no peace in the Middle East. There will be no peace on earth until the Prince of Peace returns and brings it by ruling the nations in righteousness with a rod of iron. Now, there was little that was a surprise about the Palestinian reaction to the offer of peace when there is no peace. But there were several elements concerning the events surrounding the long-awaited details of the deal of the century that are of particular significance prophetically. Now, if we can put up the uh, article from the Middle East Monitor, the MIMO article, I think we had a link up there. The headline reads, Major Arab States Support, and Turkey Rejects the Deal of the Century. Now, major Arab states announced their support. This, I'm reading from the article from the Middle East Monitor. Major Arab states announced their support for the U.S. President Donald Trump's Deal of the Century, while Turkey described it as an annexation plan aimed at usurping Palestinian lands and killing the two-state solution. The UAE mass media reported that the country, United Arab Emirates, if you're wondering what that means, the country had backed the deal and described it as an opportunity to achieve peace between Israel and the Palestinians. The only way to guarantee a lasting solution is to reach an agreement between all concerned parties, noting that the plan announced today offers an important starting point for a return to negotiations within a U.S.-led international framework. Now, keep listening. 
Meanwhile, the Egyptian foreign ministry commented on the deal in a statement published on Facebook that Cairo, quote, appreciates the continuous efforts exerted by the U.S. administration to achieve a comprehensive and just settlement of the Palestinian issue, end quote. Egypt then urged the Israelis and Palestinians to look for a solution that satisfies the aspirations of both peoples to achieve a comprehensive and just peace. Commenting on the deal, Jordanian Foreign Minister Ayman Safadi said in a statement that his country supports every genuine effort aimed at achieving just and comprehensive peace that the people or the people will accept. Now, interesting in this, uh, this was one of the things that just shocked me when it was stated, when I believe President Trump stated at first, that there were representatives from the geographic region that the Bible refers to as Sheba and Dedan at the announcement of the details of the deal from Oman, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia. Now, Ezekiel 38, 10 to 13 tells us why this is significant. Where we're told on that day, it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are inhabit again inhabited. And against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Now, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? Now, the Arab Gulf states were told through the lens of Ezekiel 38, under the names of Sheba and Dedan, the Arab Gulf states are going to question the invading forces of Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and those who will come along in tow. Now, at the announcement of the deal of the century, representatives, as I said, from Oman, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia, all were present, all represent Sheba and Dedan, at least uh, the vast majority of that region. Now, Interesting, another Times of Israel headline, just from last November in 2019, November 6, 2019, the article was dated, and the headline said, UAE said, readying to open doors to Israeli tourists, starting with the 2020 Expo. Now, the Middle East Monitor ran a headline just a few days later, five to be exact, on November 11, 2019, that said, Israel to attend Dubai Expo. Now, the article went on to say Dubai is set to welcome the Israeli delegation at the Expo 2020 in October of next year. That would be this year with a great event opening the door to future visits by Israeli citizens to the Gulf state, reports have said. Did you catch that? Opening the visits to Israeli citizens to the Gulf state. Dubai Expo 2020 is expected to be the largest such event to be held in the Middle East and Africa, and it will be held under the theme, Connecting Minds, Creating the Future. Israel does not have diplomatic relations with the UAE, and there have been efforts to normalize links between the two, and the Expo will have a pavilion for Israel to showcase its latest achievements in agricultural innovation and sustainability, the article went on to say. Now, the reason this is significant is that it has been illegal for anyone bearing an Israeli passport to enter the United Arab Emirates until November of last year. 
Egypt has also endorsed the deal, the deal of the century. The same nation that led the invasion of Israel hours after David Ben-Gurion declared Israel as an independent state. Egypt led the attacks against Israel in the Suez-Sinai War of 1956, the Six-Day War of 1967, the War of Attrition from 68 to 70, and then finally the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Now, it would be a stretch to say that Egypt or the Saudis are siding with Israel, but their relationships are definitely warming and changing. And as far as Egypt specifically is concerned, here's what is prophetically significant. In Isaiah 19, 23 to 25, we're told in that day, again, there's that phrase again associated with the last day's scenario. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, ancient enemies of Israel, the first to conquer Israel, by the way, a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed is Egypt, who? My people. And Assyria, the work of what? My hands. And Israel, my inheritance. Now, this is not the end result of the deal of the century or anything even remotely close. But it is the end result of the return of Jesus Christ to earth. Now, these ancient enemies of Israel will not only become one with Israel, they will be called God's people and the work of his hands. Ties are warming between Egypt and Israel Israel and the Saudis, and they each have specific roles in the prophetic plan of God. Now, one more thing, and then we'll close. Turkey rejected the deal of the century, as we read, calling it an annexation plan aimed at usurping Palestinian lands and killing the two-state solution. Now, in the Ezekiel War scenario, the geographic region that makes up modern-day Turkey is represented by a quartet of names, Meshach and Tubal, Gomer and Togarma. If you want to read through Ezekiel 38, you'll find them all there, though they're not listed together. But looking at ancient historians' records of who occupied what and the work of Herodotus, a 6th century Greek historian, we know who lived and dwelt where, and these groups, this quartet of names, all lived in the geographic region within the boundaries of the modern state of Israel. And they are instrumental in leading the invasion of Israel in less than a quarter century note. Turkey has gone from being a friend of Israel where Israelis would spend their vacations on the beaches, the beautiful beaches there uh, in Turkey, to now they are one of the leading opponents of Israel and will be instrumental and one of the main aggressors in the invasion of Israel during the tribulation. What happened yesterday is historic, it's prophetic, but sadly some of the responses have not been so well thought through. The deal of the century is not the covenant made by the coming prince. That deal is seven years and it can only happen after the church is gone and it allows for the Antichrist to rise to power. The deal has not invited God's wrath on the, on the United States. It actually was nothing more than a legitimizing in a national document, what already exists. It didn't add to or take away anything that Israel had. And the fact is, our president has actually finally been the one man who would stand up and tell it like it is. The world is saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. 
The major players are moving toward their foretold roles during the tribulation period. Old friends are becoming enemies. Old enemies are becoming friends or at least friendly like Egypt and the Arab Gulf states with Israel. There is a world peace in the future. And it's not from the deal of the century. It's through the one who offers the deal of all eternity. And here's how peace is finally going to come to the world. In Revelation 19, 11 to 16, John said, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and does what? Makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who's this referring to? Jesus. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. There's the church. Earlier, we're told the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. They'll be clothed in them. Followed him on white horses. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, representative of the Word of God, that with it he should strike the nations and thus judge them in righteousness. And he himself will rule them with a rod of what? Iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen, here's the deal. That's what's going to bring world peace. And that's the only thing that's going to bring world peace. The fact is, Jesus is coming soon. And he's going to first meet his church in the air. He's going to appear, and we will meet him as the dead in Christ rise first. Then he's going to return to the earth with his church to rule the nations as he finally sits on the throne of David and the government will be upon his shoulders and the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace is going to rule this world and of his kingdom and government there shall be no end. And to all that, I'll say what we sang earlier, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, we are thankful for our opportunity tonight to maybe bring some clarity uh, to that which is being so hotly debated out there in in, uh, Christendom, as well as obviously the media. And Lord, we thank you that you have told us everything we need to know. You've given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. You've given us ample information to know that we not just are living in the last days, but they are unfolding before our eyes. And Lord, therefore, Your word, again, is validated as true through the lens of studying prophecy. So we're thankful, Lord, that our nation has taken the stand that it has taken. And, Lord, we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But we recognize that only when the Prince of Peace arrives is there going to be that elusive, sought-after peace that the world so desires, the peace and security they're crying out for. And, Lord, we thank you that you've told us these things that we might know and not fear. And Lord, as Dr. Ed Heinsohn has said, uh, you've given us prophecy not to scare us, but to prepare us. And Lord, I pray that our time tonight has prepared us for last day's living, that we would not only look up, recognizing our redemption is nigh, but we would look around and see who we can take with us by sharing Christ with them. Help us to do and be those things that we need to be in these last days, knowing the hour is short. As Peter wrote, the end of all things is at hand. So, Lord, we thank you for what you've revealed to us tonight through your word. We pray that we would go our way with a better understanding and a passion for those perishing around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all the Wednesday night warriors said, Amen. Amen.